Now, a few stories caught my attention uh, last month uh, in February. In Cuba, Pastor Karel Rosabel was arrested. According to a Cuban police, they wanted him to learn that illegal churches are not allowed in Cuba. In Canada, Pastor James Coates is in prison uh, for ordering gathered worship. He can only get out on bail if he agrees not to preach the word of God again. That is part of his bail conditions. In Denmark, the government there is proposing a new law that will force all religions to translate sermons into Danish and submit them to the government. So I would have had to do this, <laughs> um, I guess, yesterday and submit it if I was in Denmark. That's the proposal uh, that's being worked out there. In Scotland, a group of churches are currently taking the government to court to challenge the current ban on gathered worship. Uh, of course, in the United Kingdom here, where we are in England, this part of the United Kingdom, we can meet like this. And in Wales, they are also meeting, as I understand it. But in Scotland, you can't. In fact, their COVID situation is even better. There is something of a COVID dictatorship going on in Scotland. And the case, of course, is being heard this week. In England, a campaign to ban churches, urging anyone to repent or resist LGBT practices, is gaining support within government. Uh, it's being championed by the Conservative MP, Alicia Keynes. Uh, she wants to ensure that um, when sermons are preached, they can't speak about homosexuality and other things. And this is gaining a lot of traction in government. Some of you would have received notices from the Christian Institute to write to your local MP as this law uh, begins to work its way through Parliament. What do these stories have in common? Well, they're all about ungodly governments trying to control and take their seat among the people of God. The stories, of course, raise an interesting question for all of us. What should we do when the government in power is ungodly? What does the Lord expect of us as we live under not just secular governments, but increasingly um, satanic power? This is a complex question, of course, and we would need to do a systematic Bible, studies to, Bible study to give us a full answer. But I believe as we're looking at this Psalm 125, it actually summarizes the answer for us wonderfully. Now, we started looking at this Psalm last week, and we only looked at verse 1 to 2. And the key truth we learned last week is that God is our eternal and reliable protector. That's what verse 1 to 2 teaches us. It says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. And now as the psalmist moves on to verse 3 to 5, 
What he wants us to do, having taught us that God is our reliable and eternal protector, what he wants to do now is to give us an example of a difficult situation or scenarios where we may be tempted to doubt that the Lord is protecting us. And that is the example, that is the context in which we are living under ungodly government. The psalmist wants to assure us that even there where you are living under ungodly powers, the Lord is protecting you. Verse 3 to 5 says this, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. And then he prays, Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. I think this verses 3 to 5 is teaching us two important lessons about how we should react when we are living under ungodly government. The first lesson it teaches us is that we must trust God that is limiting the power of ungodly government among us. Trust God to limit the power of ungodly government for you and among you, among us. You may remember last year, of course, that the BLM protesters in the U.S. had violently seized uh, a part of Seattle. Uh, They stormed the police station and declared it a police-free zone as part of their effort to push governments there to defund the police. And of course, they started guarding it with guns uh, under the leadership of a man called Warlord. And as time passed, drugs and violence increased within this zone called Charles. Until, of course, the liberal mayor was forced to send in police officers to remove the anarchists. And as we think about that story of Charles, the, the tragic story of Charles was a reminder to all of us Actually, why we need the police. So it was about defunding the police, but they only succeeded in proving why we need good police officers. Because without good police officers enforcing the law, evil reigns. And just as good police officers restrain evil on our streets, our good God, our sovereign God, is restraining ungodly governments threatening his people. You see, in the Old Testament, the biggest danger God's people faced was not really themselves. It was the nations around them. These nations wanted to make the people of Israel live under their thumb. And here in Psalm 125, God in verse 3 is promising Israel that he will continue to protect them even during the times when ungodly power and godly nations overrun them. Look at verse 3. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. We pause there. The scepter, of course, is a staff or a rod carried by a king as a symbol of his power or government. Wicked young people will be interested to know, uh, is not something good, right? People sometimes say wicked. I say, maybe that's wicked. That, that, that wicked is not something good. Wicked is something evil 
in the Bible. It is something ungodly. So the scepter of wickedness is ungodly power. It is ungodly government. And the Bible here is saying that God will not allow ungodly government to rest on his people forever. Now the word rest is interesting, isn't it? Because he has a sense of being at home, a sense of being one with the people, to take a seat among the people of God and to totally control them. And of course, immediately it reminds us of what will happen in the end time with the Antichrist, who will do this very thing. He will take, he will rest among the people of God. He will control and overrun them. He will become integrated with them. But let's not run ahead. Let's come back to Psalm 123. What God here is promising, actually, is that he will keep the ungodly nations, therefore, away from Israel. These nations may overrun them for a while, and we've seen that in the scriptures, but they will not totally overpower them or rest on them permanently. But of course that raises the question to, to all of us, isn't it? Why, why not just keep the nations away? I mean, why is God promising that these nations, if they overrun them, they will not stay there permanently? Why doesn't God just keep them away? Well, the answer, I hope you know, is because sometimes the people of God, Israel, like us today, need the ongoing discipline of God. You know, last year I was dropping my daughter Abigail to school, and it was very cold and uh, a bit icy <laughs> uh, as we were going there to Old Bexley. So we got out of the car and said, look, it's very icy. And I said to her, look, normally she scoots when she's going to school on her way when she gets out of the car. And I said to her, look, it's a bad idea to scoot today. Don't, we don't need to use a scooter. It's, it's bad. It's icy, right? But of course, my daughter, she's a bit like me, right? <laughs> a bit stubborn. So she insisted. And so that day, I just told myself, look, she only learned this by trying it out herself. I've told her, today, I don't feel like arguing with her. Today is lesson day, right? And of course, I allowed her to take the scooter out, and I was walking very close to her. And of course, 70% in, she was having good fun. And of course, she was doing the best scooting that she has ever done. And I'm sure she was also thinking, what is dad talking about? It's perfectly safe. And of course, as she was enjoying herself, she forgot what I had said, right? That it was icy. And of course, as expected, she tumbled and landed on her knee. And it was very painful for me to watch as she was crying. I knew it was going to happen. But she needed the experience to know dad knows best. And this is how God deals with us often. He allows us to experience our limitations so we can learn to trust Him. That's what suffering is for. It's just to redirect us to know that God is only the one who can keep us. And God allowed, therefore, the nations to overrun Israel for a while to grow their trust in God instead of trusting in themselves or the false gods of the nations. And the key point this verse 3 is showing us is that God didn't just let them sort of go there, you know, unbounded, as it were, be overrun and unbounded. No, God had placed a limit on what these nations could do to Israel because 
Why? Because he wanted to preserve a remnant in Israel. Look at verse 3. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. Why? Lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Notice that God's concern in this verse is not for all Israel as such. It is for the righteous. In the Old Testament, to be righteous is what? Is to do right. It's different from how we see it in the New Testament. To do righteous in the Old Testament was to do right. The righteous in Israel, therefore, are those who kept the law of God. 613 laws in the Old Testament summarized in the Ten Commandments. And, of course, the prophet Micah summarizes them in three. And so these are the righteous, those who keep the law of God. And of course, the Lord Jesus summarized this in two, isn't it? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love others as you love yourself. So those who kept the law of God. Now, God here is promising Israel through the psalmist that no matter how bad the nations oppress them, it will always return a godly remnant in Israel. Not everybody in Israel is righteous. He's saying you return a godly remnant among them. And throughout Israel, we see that though the land was invaded many times, and you've seen that in Judges, you've seen that during the time of the exile, right? Though it was invaded many times, and to the degree that they were forced into exile, God always kept a faithful remnant in Israel. Why did God do this? Well, he did it for two reasons. One, he did it because he's faithful. He had promised the patriarchs that he was always going to be their king, even when they rejected him. But the other reason was to prepare for his own arrival as king. Among this remnant are the prophets who foretold the coming of Christ. Among this remnant of the godly are some of the kings that preserved the line of Christ. You see, the history of the Old Testament is about God preparing his people for his coming into the world as our king. And he used this faithful group of people in Israel who truly loved him, the righteous, as a vehicle to fulfill that plan. A plan we read about, we always read about, during Christmas in Isaiah 9, verse 6 to 7. Do you remember that Christmas passage? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. Now, here he is, a king who rests on his people. To establish and to uphold it and with justice, with the scepter of justice, with the scepter of righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And there is a promise, isn't it? The zeal of the Lord will do this. And of course the zeal of the Lord did do this because this prophecy has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is God coming to reign over his people. Here is what you need to remember as you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament. All the things in the Old Testament, the law, 
the king, the temple, even the land of Israel, all of these things are shadows, mere shadows. The writer of Hebrews tells us, mere shadows pointing to greater heavenly realities in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus has come to give all trust in him, believing Jews and non-Jews, a new spiritual inheritance, a heavenly land, we might say, in his heavenly kingdom. Paul writing to the church at Colossae, in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 11 to 14 says this. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in what? In the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Bible is telling us, in effect, that God's people are one. I believe that there will be a great turning in the future of the Jewish people to trust in Jesus, because the Bible says that God is not finished with Israel. We'll see a great turning in the end time when he brings them to himself to true faith in Jesus. But God's people are one. There is only one God's people, the church of God, which brings together Jews and non-Jews under the righteous scepter of King Jesus. That's what the writer of the Hebrews said, isn't it? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 to 10. He says this, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O Lord, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you as king, we might say, with the oil of gladness beyond, beyond your companion. And so when we look at these passages in the New Testament and we come to Psalm 125, verse 3, we realize immediately that this verse, 3, is for us, the church of God. The church that brings together Jews and non-Jews under the scepter of righteousness. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. The righteous in Christ, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. We are righteous and upright before God because the Lord Jesus Christ lived a godly life in our place and took his Godly, perfect record on the cross. There he died and exchanged it for all whom the Father had given him. All who trusts in Jesus Christ. And God here in verse 3 is promising that if you are in Christ, God has placed a limit on what ungodly government can do to his people. God is protecting the church now and forever. Of course, sometimes, of course, God will allow the church to live under ungodly governments. But he will never allow the church of God to suffer beyond what we can endure. That's what this verse is promising us. So here's a question, right? As we think about this truth, that God is limiting the power 
of ungodly government. How should that affect the way we react to ungodly government? What does this truth mean for us today? How does it help us to live under the most godless government perhaps the UK has ever had, if we're being honest? I think it does three things. First of all, it gives us perspective. It gives us perspective, doesn't it? The world is at a critical moment. Democracy in the West is in retreat, indeed around the world. Governments are ruling by decree. Civil liberties are under attack. Christian values which have held the West together for centuries are being replaced by relative morality, identity politics, and secularism. It's not just me saying that, because Samson is saying that. Um, Holland, in his book Dominion, makes this very point, and he's an atheist. There is a convergence of thinking, even among atheist thinkers, that the Judeo-Christian foundation is being ripped under a rug and Western society is now disintegrating. And in recent moments, it's becoming clear that we are now seeing a new ungodly trinity of government, big tech companies, and illiberal media reshaping our society before our very eyes. Beloved, the world is changing. We are at what some call an inflection point. It will never be the same again. And certainly not for the better. And to the forces that are shaping our world, what we need to realize as the people of God is that they regard the church as standing in the way of what they consider progress. There is nothing else preventing deep, difficult changes that are ahead of us except the church of God. And so we as believers, as we sit here every Sunday morning, we must expect our life to get worse in this world. That's reality. That's where we're headed, folks. And when we start thinking about these issues, we shouldn't bury our head in the sand. We should think about them, right? And when we start thinking about these issues, right, it can leave us, I don't know about you, but it leaves me often feeling anxious, feeling depressed at what lies ahead, the future that my daughter is going to have to grow up in the next few years. And of course, it leaves you feeling angry, isn't it? powerless. But as I open this psalm, this psalm is saying to me, it's encouraging me, it says, Chola, restore perspective. Do not spend too much time on the details. Focus on the big picture. The world is a co- like a complex giant puzzle. You know it's a mess, but don't focus on the details. Focus on the big picture. And what is the big picture according to Psalm 125, verse 3? The big picture is this, that there is only one true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the one calling all the shots, really. It is not big Boris or big tech. It is big Jesus in charge. So the Bible is saying, keep your focus on Jesus. Don't bury your head in the sand. Be aware of what's going on, but keep your focus on Jesus. 
As the world gets worse, do not let Satan rob you of your peace. Remember, Jesus is on the throne and he is keeping his church. And all of us, what we have to make sure is to ensure that we are in Jesus. And if you are in Jesus, focus on him. You see, because you are in Jesus, God has placed a limit on the suffering you are going through. Whether it is under government or any other suffering. That's quite an important point for us to understand. It's a huge point. Because as you sit here this morning, I wonder, is some situation in your life this morning, not just the government, making you feel helpless this morning? Is there some situation that is making that you feel unable to cope through it? It's so big that you just can't work through it. What the passage is saying to us this morning, friends, if you are in Christ, the Lord knows your pain. And he knows that at this moment you are struggling to endure. And it's good to admit that before him because he already knows it. And because he knows you're struggling to endure, he has brought you here this morning and he has prepared this psalm to remind you that you are not alone. And that Christ himself is suffering with you. And most importantly, he has placed a limit on your suffering. Now I know it does not feel like that at the moment. He said, Chola, yeah, God is talking about limits. I don't feel like there's a limit to what I'm going through right now. The Lord knows that too, that you don't feel like that. But he's calling you this morning, trust his word. Trust that God is not letting you suffer more than is necessary to build you up in your work with him. Our father is not a tyrant. Is a loving, gentle shepherd who has come to us in Jesus. And he will never let you suffer one minute longer than is necessary. So trust him. We must trust God that he is limiting our suffering. And that he is working through that suffering for our good. Because he has promised for the scepter of righteousness... The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. Lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. So this is the perspective. Jesus is in charge. The second thing this truth does to us is it gives us meaning, doesn't it? It gives us meaning. Everyone here is asking in their lives at some point of us, this basic question. Who am I? Why do I exist? Where is my life going? Why is there pain and suffering? If there is a God, why does he just allow suffering just to happen in my life? All of us have asked this question. And these questions can overwhelm us. Even those of us who profess faith in Jesus. When we are suffering, we can feel Empty and unsatisfied. Oh, my beloved, this psalm is reassuring us. 
If you are in that situation and you're trusting in Jesus, this psalm is reassuring you. It's saying, if you're trusting in Jesus, your identity is that you are a child of God who is greatly valued by your Heavenly Father. In fact, so valued by your Heavenly Father that God never acts in this world without lovingly thinking about you. Did you hear that? There is nothing that God does in this world without thinking about the implication he has for you, his child, in Christ. Everything he does is for your good welfare. You know, last week I, I responded to a consultation at my uh, daughter's school about the um, new curriculum, the relationships and sex education curriculum. I had to respond by the 4th of March. I did my civic duty, my parental duty, and I engaged with this. And I hope you are doing the same with your school. It's vital that you engage with the school. And as I wrote that email, I got an email back from the headmistress who had a run-in uh, two years ago, right? Very nice, kind email. And she promised me to respond to my concerns. I think she will, but I am not holding my breath. Why? Because I'm just one of 500 parents. I mean, I'm not special to her, right? I'm just one of 500 parents you have to worry about. So I'm not holding my breath. If she responds, that's great. I did it for the Lord, right? And for my child. She responds, that's good. But if she doesn't, I understand. I'm just one of 500, right? But as I thought about that, I realized, with God, it is totally different. Yes, Jesus has many children. There may be in hundreds of millions. He has. And yet he cares for each one of us as if we were his only child. To the Lord, I am as if I exist. It's just me. If everybody else was not alive, Jesus would still have gone to the cross for me. To the Lord, I am priceless to him. That's why in Christ, he laid down his life for my sins. And this passage is saying to us who trust in Jesus, you are my top priority. I am working in this world to secure your relationship with me. Nothing overrides that. Not even big government. That's big. That is big. Government may scoff at the church, but God is saying to us, no matter how small you look to them, you have infinite value because you are in Christ. Beloved, there is nowhere else. I have searched ideology after ideology. New ideas, old ideas. There is nowhere else where you're going to find this. Except in Jesus Christ. What you are searching for is found right in this scripture. It is God who gives us meaning and purpose. So this truth is reminding us again. What we want is right here in Christ.
Finally, this truth gives us direction, doesn't it? Because if God is truly limiting the power of ungodly government, then let us not take matters in our own hands, beloved. We must let God do his work. And one way we do this is by obeying the government. Yes. By submitting to our government as God has commanded us. The Bible commands we obey the government under two conditions, isn't it? If it does not compel us to sin against God in matters of worship, we should by no means accept any regulations that seeks to regulate the worship of God. That is a sin against God to accept that. That's one caveat. The other caveat is, if the government directly compels us to sin ourselves, we should also reject that. Those are the only two areas in the Bible. Everything else the government does, we must obey. If it commands us to do it. It may look foolish to us, but if it doesn't affect those two areas, we must obey. Beloved, we cannot refuse to pay taxes just because the government is using money to make it easier to kill infants in the womb. It's a grave sin for the government to do that, but we cannot restrict our taxes based on that. Or if the government is fighting illegal wars, sending our young men and women into combat on false pretext. We can't just decide that we don't want to give money to the government to do that. We should do our biblical duty and allow the government to be held to account by God himself. Now I know some people disagree with this and there is a good biblical case that can be made. These are actually areas of conscience. But I'll just remind you to remember that our Lord Jesus paid taxes to Caesar. And Caesar is as ungodly as they get. I mean, the man claimed to be God. Well, claimed to be a demon, to be precise. So let us not take matters into our own hands. Let us show we are truly trusting God to limit the power of our ungodly government by submitting to God where it does not fringe our worship of God. And let us remember First Peter 2, which calls on us to honor the emperor, to speak about our government in a way that honors those God has elected. There's no room for insulting the prime minister or his ministers. There's no room for believers to insult anyone at all. No, I, 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 this point is for me, right? <laughs> this point is for me. Because all of us, we are tempted to speak badly of those in authority. But if we're trusting God to limit the power of government, well, let us trust him by submitting to the government in areas that they don't compel us to worship. Force gods or they don't seek to regulate um, our worship of our true God. The second point, so that's the first point we learn from this, is that we might trust God to limit the power of ungodly government among us. I just want to make a second point quickly, mindful of time. I'm going to run through this quickly. The second point we learn from this passage is that we must trust God to limit the power of ungodly government through us. Don't miss that. Through us. Notice that this psalm is divided in two. Did you notice that? 
Verse 1 to 3 simply declares the truth that God keeps his people safe. And it gives us an example. An example it keeps us safe is in the context of government, particularly. Right? So the psalmist is saying, look, trust God because God is keeping you safe. That's what verse 1 to 3 does. Verse 4 to 5 is different. It's a prayer in light of the truth of verse 1 to 3. In verse 4 to 5, the psalmist is praying. He's praying to God to continue to keep his people safe from evil and give us peace. Look at verse 4 to 5. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. To do good uh, is to be righteous. So the psalmist is praying to God to help his people to continue living right by keeping them safe from the ungodly. Right? And of course this raises a question, right? If God is already keeping his people, why is the psalmist praying for it? <laughs> this is the question all of us ask often, isn't it? If, if God answers, if God does whatever he likes, if he's sovereign and he's ruling, why do I need to pray? Well, the answer is in the question. The psalmist is praying here to teach us that very truth, that God limits the power of ungodly government through our prayers to him. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? God, who can do everything by himself, has ordained that he should have us as his co-workers in the governance of the world. He has given us a role to play in that. He has given us this role that we should pray to God and through our prayers, He will act in the world. I think it's extraordinary. I think it's just amazing. I think every time we feel tired to pray, we should remember this truth. God can do it all by himself. He doesn't need us. But he has ordained, he has decreed that he wants us involved. And so he has enabled us, he has well, invented prayer as the means to do that. It's an extraordinary privilege to pray. And this truth, by the way, that God limits the power of ungodly government through our prayers is found in other parts of the Bible. For example, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to 6. You remember that? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to 6, it says this. First of all, Paul is praying. First of all, sorry, he's speaking to Timothy. First of all, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all the people. Who? For kings... And all who are in high position. Why? Why do you need to pray? Paul says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. If you don't pray, you're not going to get that. That's what Paul is saying. You want a peaceful life? You want a dignified life? You want a godly life? You want a quiet life? Pray for it. Pray for the government, Paul says. Verse 3, this is good to pray like this. To live in peace. And it is pleasing in the sight of our God, of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If you don't pray for the government, 
Evangelism may not happen. Paul is saying. And then he goes on to remind us in verse 5. For there is one God. And there is one mediator. Between God and man. The man Jesus Christ. You have every reason to pray. Because your mediator makes it possible. For you to cry out to God. Who is this mediator? What has he done? Well he has given himself. Paul says in verse 6. As a ransom for all. Which is a testimony given at the proper time. I think the point is obvious isn't it? Paul, like the psalmist, is saying God has ordained prayer to restrain ungodly government. And therefore we must pray. And so the first point to take away from this message today we must ask ourselves is, are you seriously taking this seriously? Are you praying seriously for local councillors? Your MPs, ministers, and especially our prime minister. Are you praying for God to restrain them in their activities? Not just once every blue moon, but continuously, ongoing, weekly. Are you praying for the prime minister to repent and to come to true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? To be born again? Or have you gone down the road of unbelief and not believing God can serve the worst amendments? By the way, in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy... Paul already encourages us that God can save the West because Paul himself was the chief of sinners. So the question for us here is this. Are you taking a prayerful interest to pray for the government? Are you encouraging this church to be a church that prays for the government? It's a responsibility of everyone here to encourage us to pray for the government. Are you taking part in prayer meetings uh, which are focused like the one this afternoon to pray for the government? Beloved, the point surely is this. There is no point of mourning about the Great Reset or COVID dictatorship or whatever is going on if we are not praying about it. We must take it to the Lord in prayer. And of course the next question then is what should we pray about? Well, just briefly there, in verse 4 and 5 is the content of our prayer. If you're, if you're wondering what you should pray about, verse 4 and 5 tells us, doesn't it? Pray, do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Three quick prayers there. First of all, pray that the Lord will do good to us. That's what verse 4 is saying. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in heart. Our Lord Jesus has shed his own blood on the cross for us to make us good and upright before him. We stand now with a new heart. We stand now accepted, dressed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not good because of what we have done. We are good and righteous because of what he has done. And therefore, we can pray this prayer. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good in Christ. So let us pray that the Lord will continue doing good to his church. You see, this may surprise us here because we may think, well, this is not what the prosperity people do. Pray for, for God to bless them. The Bible says we should pray for God to bless us. You see, the, pro- the point is not praying for God to bless us. The point is what we are praying about. We should be praying for the blessing of his church and our lives among his people. Not selfish prayers that seek to gratify our sinful cravings. We should pray for his spiritual blessings to abound 
in the world. The sort of things Paul talked about, the spread of the gospel, for us to live fruitful life. So pray for God to do good to us. The second thing is pray that God will help us to live holy lives rather than living in the way that supports ungodliness. That's what verse 5 is getting at. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evil doers. By the way, this prayer is, is just really a self-reminder by the people of God not to wander from the path of holiness and start living like the ungodly. What the psalmist is doing here is that he's encouraging us to examine ourselves. He's saying, look, you cannot expect God to protect you if you are living under the cover of sin. Deal with your sin. Examine your sin. Look, God is gracious, but you must repent. If the church of God is to see a great move of God, a removal of the scepter of wickedness in the land, we must repent as a church. One of the tragedies of the current pandemic is that it has been characterized with so little repentance in the churches. I mean, I've attended church meetings of different people. It's all about mourning about how bad things have become and what we can do. But no repentance, no self-examination. About, there's no sense that somehow God would only allow this if he wants to correct us. There's been no sense of that. Oh, beloved, we should be seeking God and crying out to him and saying, Lord, why have you banned worship in Scotland? Search us, O Lord, and know us. We should be crying before God and saying, Lord, why are you letting us worship so far apart from each other? Why are you letting us having to wear masks in worship of God? Why has this pandemic visited us? We should be crying out to God like Nehemiah. You know, when Nehemiah heard the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down, he cried out and wept. He wept before God and he repented before God. And that should be our, our prayers. We should be asking, why has God let this plague loose among us? Why has God stopped us visiting one another in our homes? The very thing he commands in scripture. Why has he made that to be an act that we can only do under the fear of a large fine of imprisonment? Those restrictions the government has imposed are for a reason, of course. But as the nation looks at them, we must interpret them differently. We must see the, the hand of God correcting us through them. And he must move us. To repentance. So let us ask God to convict us of any sins we are tolerating. So self-examination, finally, we should pray, isn't it? Not just for repentance, but we should pray to enjoy the peace of God. The word for peace, of course, here is shalom. And it means wholeness, completeness. It's the absence of war, conflict. But it's more than that. It is the presence of God himself bringing unity, friendship, holiness, harmony, freedom, security. That's shalom. The very things that are threatened by ungodly government. 
And the psalmist is here is reminding us, let us pray for these things. You know, if someone gives you your mobile, their mobile number, right? Freely, they just give you a mobile, right? And say, give me a call. You didn't extract it from them, they just gave it to you, right? Give me a call. Would they then ignore your phone calls? Would they? Would you expect them to ignore your phone calls when you called them? Of course not. Because they gave you that promise. Call me and here's my number freely. Beloved, prayer is nothing more than pleading the promises of God. And in Psalm 125, God is inviting us to plead his promises. And in Jeremiah 33 verse 3, he has said, Call to me and I will answer you. Call to me and I will answer you. So this morning, as I've spoken to you at length, and I apologize for that, I would just say this. Let us pray the promises of God. Let us pray that God would bless his people. Let us pray that God would convict us of sin in true repentance. And let us pray that God will give his people peace. How should we react when the ungodly threaten? Well, we have learned that first we must trust God to limit the power of ungodly government among us. And secondly, we must trust God to limit the power of ungodly government through our prayers. Amen.